What's up, man? How you doing? Good. Good, good to be here. Good. Thanks for having a us. A little in. hot. Little, yes. Uh, <laughs> Will, back me up on this. It was. I, I told him it didn't hit hundreds until August last summer. And then, and then this year it hit hundreds like in early June. I take pride in my fitness, and this was a very humbling couple of days of trail runs. Yeah, but you know, for a Texan to go up to the elevation in Utah, they would it's be yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like that's more reasonable. Sat. Like you're up in the elevation, but you wouldn't think that 30, 40 degree change can just stop you in your tracks. Yeah, man, it's nuts. It with age too. Yeah, I always say age ain't like whiskey. It doesn't get better with uh, time. That's true. Um, But, you know, I'd love to when uh, the temperatures spike, like for one season, they're like, oh, global warming. You're like, okay. All right. Let's simmer down now. So you're in Park City, Utah. Yep. From Um, Wisconsin originally, but lived in Park City the last seven years. We're in Wisconsin. A little town called Barron. I grew up in a dairy farm. So northwest Wisconsin, kind of east of Minneapolis, actually, across the border. Actually working the farm as a... Oh, yeah, yeah. I always, I always tell people, like, it's funny. I, I wanted to play Little League growing up. My dad's like, no, you're actually going to bail hay. Like, I have a hernia scar from throwing hay bales when I was eight years old. Like, it was it was pretty hard up there. You're so kidding me. That's just what we did, you like, know? Like, what, what time were you getting up in the mornings? Uh, chores started at 4.30 in the morning. So you were, you were up at 4? Or uh, did, you, did you go to, like, I was up at, like, 4.28. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I like your style. And then even during the school year, then done. Yeah, I can't school. say every single day. I mean, there were times when I think my mom did a lot of defending of me and my brothers growing up that yeah. got us some extra sleep here and there. But if it was up to my dad, you know, that's why he had it. So that's why that's why I was going to do it. And uh, I mean, look, I built a great work ethic moving forward. But um, my childhood was I felt like my childhood was a generation behind like all of my friends. You know what I mean? Like I grew up like my dad grew up where it was like mm-hmm. there was a lot of work, a lot of blue collar stuff where my friends were like playing Little League and going to the lake and watching MTV and that kind of thing. Like, yeah. Because like dairy farm is 24-7, 365. Yeah, they, it's not like farming or... They call it animal yeah. husbandry, and there's a like yeah. that is, I think, the best way you put it. It's like you're, you're, married, you're married to it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, tit for tat. I Honestly, like the things you, you did and learned, mm-hmm. the foundational habits you built is, I mean, you've got to be able... I, I mean, you sort of correlate that to the success and your drive and discipline and commitment. Yeah. I, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but I no, do pat, think it's just, if, <laughs> do if, you, like, if you don't do it, I'll do it. For my you. work ethic. Um, I, I can usually hang with anybody. I can push further. I can go harder. And I think that that's just like, I think my DNA changed growing up on a farm, you know, it just became normal. And so my normal's just a lot more involved and aggressive and like consistent than I think other people were raised. So it's helped me a lot in my life. Okay, I didn't so like it when I was twelve, but uh, I, I, now I, I definitely see the value. And thanks, mom and dad. But, uh, yeah, I want to play little league, and you know, well, that begs a question: your work ethic. In, I mean, do you consider yourself a workaholic in some senses? Um, that's a good question. I so I'm single. I'm 43. I've always had this mindset. Uh, that we call that smart. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I think uh, you know. I think I've always had this philosophy that like. I'm going to work when there's nothing like I'm going to, if I don't have anything else to do, I'm going to work I'm going to improve my life. And then when I meet somebody or I have something else I want to do, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. So I tend to work pretty long hours, long days, but it's just kind of how I have it framed up in my mind. I don't, some people might think I'm a workaholic. Some might not. I don't know. Um, it's just what I do. So it needs to be done. I, you know, I, some people, and I feel dude, when, when you're a employee and you're, you're grinding and you just have no like satisfaction in your job, yeah, I, I can understand you don't identify work, but I've always found like my DNA is tied to my work. 
Oh, and totally. my work identifies my DNA. Totally. I don't know how to separate the two anymore. Like what I do for a job and what I do in life is, is all one and the same. And I love that, but it's kind of hard to turn it off sometimes. Well, I mean, but you're a genius too. You've actually tried to monetize doing what you love. I mean, yeah. So when I started the company I'm, you know, I'm running now, I, I, it took me a couple of years to figure it out, but I, I'm an outdoors person. I wanted to be in the outdoor space, but there was there's so much outdoor gear. Like to build another Gore-Tex jacket is silly, right? So I just kept looking for like what, I had an old mentor that always said market space, not marketplace. Like find the gap in the shelves. Like don't build another Red Bull, figure out what's next. Yeah. And um, it just kind of hit me that, wow, um, like survival, preparedness, and camping are like the same. It's just that one you choose to do and one happens to you. Right. So there's a little bit different approach yeah. to it, but there was a lane there. And so once I had that in my head, I just, I kind of tested it and like tried to prove myself wrong for a long time. And I was like, no, I think this is a really necessary needed thing and something I want to do. And so that's what led me down that path. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm a big believer in fortune favors that not the bold, the prepared. I literally have that tattoo right here. That's fortune. That's in Latin. Fortune favors the bold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I often say that fortune uh, favors the prepared. Yeah. It's yeah. in, in, you know, when it comes to survival, if you plan for those contingencies, if you're outfitted yep. for those contingencies, things go a lot smoother. Yeah. I always tell people like, you don't need a bunker full of stuff. It's just a few things can change a potentially serious situation into just an inconvenience. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take much, but nothing is kind of ridiculous. Just assume you don't need anything. I'm, I'm actually heading to Connecticut this weekend for a, a Netflix series uh, to do an interview. So some... A uh, kid who recently passed away was uh, out on a boat with his mom. The boat mm -hmm. sunk in the Atlantic. He um, got to a life raft. His mom did not. And he spent seven days at sea before he was recovered. Whoa. And they're like, how is this possible? And he had food. He had water. He had a dry set of clothes that once he was in the raft, he was no longer uh, Cold, wet. wet. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, I'm like, that's, that's actually a vacation. How old was what? he? Uh, 30s. Oh, 30. Okay, okay. And um, just passed in prison, which maybe makes the, the documentary even oh, wow. more, I mean, tragic. Um, but seven days at sea, survival situation with food, water. I mean, you get it's to look probably at good fishing. Yeah, I know. You <laughs> probably get, yeah, I mean, you look, the thing I loved at sea, and I, you know, I spent one four-month period on a ship in the Navy, and that was it. But mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was a different ship, awesome mission. Um, in the stars. Oh, it's yeah. like it's like being in in, in Utah in the, yeah. in the wilderness. You look up and you just don't see that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's something about nature. I'm I'm sure he probably would have preferred to be in contact with yeah. with home. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've been in those situations where things are tough and you just got to go. Wait a minute, look where I am. Like I'm fine. It's gonna be okay. Like this is pretty special. Nobody gets to do this. Yeah, I love those feelings. Those there, moments. You know, except now that you're out in nature, you see like the 20 Starlink satellites. I was gonna go. bring that yeah, up. Like, I've seen that. The first time I saw that, I like I was like. It's the Chinese. Am I tripping? Like, yeah. what is, what is going on? That's a weird thing to see move across the sky. And now they're uh, they're equidistant. Yep. Between, that's it's yep. insane, dude. Yep. It's insane. Uh, we've come a long way. In so in Wisconsin, I mean, did you guys grew up hunting. Yeah. Um. Not not like a super heavy hunting family. It, it was very like Wisconsin farm upbringing, where like on Thanksgiving everybody came over. You'd do drives through the cornfields. You'd hunt whitetails. Um. You know when we grew up when I grew up. We didn't have smartphones. Uh, November, when the hunting season is in Wisconsin, do, do we seriously cold. have to say that now? We yeah, back, back then we didn't have smartphones because they're like what? Well, what I'm getting at is yeah, like, no, there's a lot of boredom for like a 15 year old yeah. to sit in a tree when it's 
zero degrees out and just yeah. wait for hours and hope something walks by. Uh, so I did it, but it wasn't something I was super passionate about. It wasn't until like I started hunting out West chasing elk and it was really athletic that I was like, Oh, this is, it, it, I tell people it's like, I think we all have this caveman DNA and if you turn it on, you just can't turn it off. And when I started doing that, it just changed my whole life. Like every hillside looks different. Every, you know, everything you look at, you're like, where would the elk be? Where would the bears be? And yeah. it's, I don't know. It's become just an addiction and a part of my, my core. I love it's, it. Is, is it the thrill of the hunt? I mean, what, what is it? You know, I don't, I don't like killing. I no, don't, I don't do I. like get excited about like shooting something. I think what it is, is it's like the, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like when you are like, you're talking about the quakies and the aspens and yeah. stuff. Like when you're in the aspens and the leaves are changing and you snuck in on a herd of elk and they're all around you and they're just living and like the voyeuristic nature of just being among them and seeing how they act and being like, wow, I overcame all of their senses, their eyesight, their smell. I'm in here. Like to me, that's when I, like if I go home and I, admit I don't get a shot, like that's a good day. That's cool. So for me, it's, it's kind of skills, right? Yeah. Can I, can yes. I physically get there? Can I outsmart all of these senses that were tuned by these animals to look out for predators and, and find my way in? Like for me, that's, that's like one of the hardest things in life, I think, you know, for, for like a normal person. It's like, can you acquire those skills and be successful consistently doing that? I just love it. it. Plus nature to me is, uh, it's right up there with religion. Yeah. Uh, I, it is, uh, nature is absolutely God's palace, man. And I think when you can break away and actually put that phone that you have now yeah. down for, well, one, you're not going to get service. Right. Um, well, there, there's say, something settling about it. Yeah, I would say like with like, People go to meditation classes and they go to yoga and they go to Tai Chi. I'm like, have you ever bow hunted? I mean, you're feeling uh, the you wind. If you see that in the yoga parlor, I'm sure you're going to be like, you <laughs> savage. Yeah, but it's like, you got to pay attention to the wind on your face because you have to take the wind into consideration. And you're moving and you're like placing your steps carefully between twigs. So you don't make noise. And then you might be halfway into a step and some you know, cow elk looks at you and you have to freeze and it's like tight. you like frozen in a position. And there's just, there's so many things to it. Your breath work, if you're going to shoot, like, you know, it is shooting, you have to control your heart and your breathing. And I think it's all those things that we had historically that we just don't get in, in modern life anymore. Mm -hmm. So people are taking these classes to get that. But for me, like that checks all the boxes. I get home and I'm like, I feel good. I'm so calm. I'm so relaxed. And I love that. That is, that is awesome. I'm, I'm jealous that you live in park city. Dude, come on do, out you live in, do you live in Park City or, or on the outskirts? Um, I'm about seven miles out of town. Seven miles out yeah, of town. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Pretty close. That's yeah. gorgeous out there. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I can be at the Salt Lake Airport in an hour. I probably shouldn't say this because we've had so many people move there. I don't need more people moving there and like pumping <laughs> it, but uh, it's so good. Yeah, hey, <laughs> I love blame it. Blame the, uh, the is, again, what is it? the Housewives of Salt Lake City. Oh, I yeah. mean, even got my wife considering, <laughs> like, should we go to look at Park City and Heber? And I'm like, yes. Um the, so you originally, uh, you know, were an athlete in extreme sports. Is that safe to say? No, I mean, well, no. I, so like, I think you're talking about the BMX. Yes. I didn't do that. I actually just put it together. I'm, I'm like an average athlete. Okay, I played. So you, you came up with the concept. I was, a, people. I was a musician for 10 mm -hmm. years. And what happened was we, we played for seven or eight years. We did really well. We, uh, we never signed a record deal. We had some, some interesting offers, but they were kind of slavery contracts. And we were just making money, being a small band regionally and playing, playing a bunch of countries and all over. And, um, Best years of your life? 
party. People go, do you miss it? And I'm like, I miss when it was good. Like when you're in front of a big crowd and everything's rocking, it's awesome. But like we'd go from, you know, 96,000 people at, at like the, the world's largest block party in Chicago to like 13 people at O'Gara's garage in <laughs> St. Paul the next day. And yeah. so it was just this non-linear, like, what am I doing with my life yeah. thing, you know? And I was about to get out of it. We were down here at South by Southwest playing and some, some military guys came up and said, Hey, you ever thought about playing overseas for, for the guys serving in Iraq? And I was like, I'm in. So we did a tour and went really well. Um, and, and the funny, I guess we got time. I can tell these are fun stories, but um, we got over there. We landed. We went to Kuwait. In what year is this? Oh, gosh. Um, you're going to ask me that. I'm going to have to look it up. It was about 15 years ago, I suppose. So, um, you know, we go to Arif John or, or one of those. And you go up and fly out of, uh, is it Ali Asalim? You fly out of into Iraq. Yeah. And we got up to Camp Takedum. And then we took uh, Ospreys into this place called Camp Korean Village. And that was like our first yes. show. I think that's... Uh it was on the Syrian border. Yeah, I'm trying to Al Qaim. I think is is what that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we we landed. I mean, we we hadn't. We packed up our gear, flew over. Like, oh, it's gonna be great. And we get there, and we're sitting in the defect, and I look around. I'm like, this is 100 sober dudes, and we're here to sing for them. Like, this is so weird, right? And I'm like, I start freaking out. I'm like, what am I gonna do to be cool? Like. If I was a guy and like a bunch of guys showed up to sing for me, I would, I would, I'd be like, what the heck? Like, what are you guys doing? So I'm like sitting there and I look across the room at this like glass freezer full of NA beers. And I was like, can I get like six or eight cases of those beers on the stage? And these guys are like, yeah, I guess so, whatever. And we get up there and I told my drummer, I'm like, let's just, let's just play some covers. So we started playing like Led Zeppelin, whole lot of love, just down, 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 down. And I'm like, who's the highest ranking officer here? And everybody points, right? Got him up there. I put a guitar on him just to fake it. Uh, and I started handing out all the beers. I'm like, we're in the biggest beer fight that Camp Korean Village is ever going to have, right? Oh, and boy. so we had this big this big NA beer fight. And I was having guys come up and just dive off into the you know crowd, crowd stage dives and all that. And we just had fun. We just had a party. Yeah. And we got done. And I didn't know it, but the chief of programs at the time, Colonel Scott Rainey, was there. And he's like, this is the best show I've ever had. You guys have to come back more and more. So... Um, this is a long story, but we came back the second trip then and having lunch with him, like, what's the hardest thing about your job? And he said, you know, there's like 300 bases I can't get to. And the reason being they were getting these big old PA systems out of Kuwait, which meant they'd have to take a C-130. They didn't want a convoy anywhere. So all the forward operating bases and joint security stations didn't have landing strips. They couldn't go there. So my brother and I measured the inside of a Blackhawk. And at the time, we were in Minneapolis working with, like, Prince and all the guys there in Minneapolis. Yeah. So we had access to these amazing sound engineers, this one guy, Cody Anderson. And we were like, this is the, this is the square footage that we can haul stuff around. And we basically built a hot-rodded speaker system that would allow us to drop into all these bases. So then we were just like, as much as you guys can come, get over here and play. So we were doing all these shows. And it, it got to a point where it was too much for us. Yeah. So then I started sending other groups. And then we came up with the BMX thing and everything else. So How many tours? <laughs> tours. How many times did you go over there? 39. You went over to Iraq. Yeah. And they were 30? all two or three weeks at a time. So, yeah. I, hopefully they weren't paying you guys, right? I mean, yeah, it traveled. Went, so, yeah. They didn't. We were the lowest. So it ended up being like by year two or three. We had a contract with the DOD to provide entertainment. But I'm really proud of the fact that we were always, as I understood it, the lowest cost providers. Um, what we found out was you had to bid for a business class ticket for any entertainers going over. You didn't have to book a business class ticket. So we would always make people fly coach, which allowed us to save money. 
Um, so we never charged any kind of fee to the military or anything mm-hmm. else. And uh, also, like, anybody that's willing to fly coach to Amsterdam, to Kuwait, is not going to miss a show because they're being a prima donna. Yeah. So we got the right people. We never miss shows. They're always the highest rated. And so we kind of made the money off the delta of, like, booking the different flights. Yeah. Um, but... But for us, it was like, I mean, we, my brother and I bought several PA systems, like uh, at Ali Asalim, like we, we built the PA system there. We just donated it. One, it was easier for us because we went there all the time and then we had a setup and we didn't have to bring it. But two, it was like, we wanted to give back and do the right thing and, and not take advantage of the situation. So 39 yeah. times. Yeah. I had a lot of frequent five miles for, for a while. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> Dude, you, you served in a different way. Yeah. I, I definitely would have had a couple combat patches i think if, oh, were, uh, were you ever on any bases that uh, you had to have been no but i mean like time in in theater like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it was it ended up being like but you never like got a, mortared or oh yeah yeah oh, yeah, okay. yeah oh yeah um we landed one time and there was a sniper shooting we had to we had to like get off this uh is it like, like, hillary, Hil- like hillary clinton in bosnia <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i don't think there's any records of this but i do remember we were coming in and it was like you guys need to get your heads down and run when we land and then i remember one time we were in the middle of baghdad at this old bombed out mall we played for these dudes and as we were taking off we started taking gunfire and it was just we're just sitting in a black hawk yeah the doors are open and uh we had a we had a surface air missile Almost hit our plane coming into land somewhere once. We did a combat landing, and you could see the corkscrew of the of the of the projectile going by. Um, what else happened? Uh, had a car bomb knock me over once. A lot of like you know incoming mortar. You get into a get into a bunker and you hear stuff yeah. slapping against concrete yeah. walls. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, as you know, it's like you'll go for three trips and absolutely nothing happens. It's so boring, and then mm. all of a sudden, one, it's just every time you turn around, you're kind of ducking. So. Yeah. I always, I always say, like, it's funny, I'll, for some reason, a lot of people think I was in the military, probably because I did this, but I always say, like, I was I was not a cowboy, but I was I was kind of a rodeo clown, you know, like, I was kind of there. Story of my life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so. Still plays a part. I mean, you ever watch Flint for uh, PBR? No. The guy who dresses up as a clown? The guy's an entertainer. No, I mean, I've been to the rodeos. I mean, those guys are amazing. Oh, yeah. dude. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I've, I've gotten really close with the, uh, the PBR, uh, okay. especially because they, they created a team series. Okay. So I work with the Austin Gamblers and just like you've never seen a more values, faith-based community. Hmm. And I mean, we went to the, uh, well, Will was with me, went to the finals and covered it in Dallas. They all stand. They all, you know, recognize the the troops, the first responders, everyone standing for the anthem. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, and all the writers talk about, you know, God and faith. And it was, I was blown away for a kid from California who never thought he'd follow PBR. Now I follow the riders pretty, uh, pretty uh, closely. Yeah, we have a big rodeo in Oakley, Utah, outside of Park City. It's yeah. a really good one. And I actually went with all the guys from Team One, uh, just June thirtieth. They were in town training, no staying kidding. at my buddy's house. We all yeah. went, and it was just fun to be there with them. But yeah, you walk up, and it's like they're saying a prayer before they start the rodeo. Uh, it's super pro American. Like it just it feels good. Like yeah. it's just like these are my people. You know, I've never ridden a bull, but like there's a lot of uh, good camaraderie in that in that stadium with everybody there dalton castle who was uh i think it was he was number two uh behind uh vito uh leme um he said to me he's like a cowboy is less about wearing boots and a hat and more about uh a mindset and i'm like i like that dude i really like that and i threw on my cowboy hat and wills from texas like no no doesn't work banderas (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he, he doesn't like Californians too much. Um, yeah, that's funny. 
Yet his boss is one. <laughs> Dude, that is, I, I'm, I, I don't know whether to, to hug you or, or, or kiss you. I mean, that's, I mean, to do that, I mean, you, you had to have had a lot of troops come up and be like, hey, thank you, man. I just needed that. Yeah. Um, you know, military, my, my grandpa served, but it wasn't like a thing close to my family. Like, I didn't know about even like SEALs or anything like that until probably college. Like, it just, never crossed my path. So I, I never really considered it. And um, I think by the time I knew about this stuff, it was too late for me to be a part of it. So, you know, when they asked us, and it was funny, it was here in Austin years ago, I was like, absolutely. Like, I feel like I, I have a debt here I need to pay and go do this. And if I, I always told my brother, I'm like, if, if we can do something, we should. Like, it's just that simple. Like, if, if we have the ability to go over there and do this, we should. So I never feel like anybody should thank me. I, it was my way of saying thanks. Uh, but... Yeah, I think that the most impactful thing I would hear frequently from troops is, man, for like an hour, I forgot I was here. And I think yeah. that that's like a really good reset. It's like a real, it's, and, and, and there were crazy things. We had, we had a guy that we hung out with all day one time at a base and um, it was a crazy story, but he was kind of the, the, like the PR guy on the base. I can't remember mm -hmm. what you call it, community, whatever. But he was taking photos of us while we were there. We hung out with him that night. He left, came back because he forgot his camera lens. Uh, we got on a plane in the morning, took off and we landed. Uh, we were met by a bunch of people and they wanted to question us and he had committed suicide that night. And it just like, it hit me so hard that like, like it had all been kind of fun. Like we're doing our thing over there, but it made me realize like, you don't know what everybody's dealing with over there individually. And so it really made me crank it up and spend time with every single person. And, and I, you know, I don't know how many people, maybe we, we pushed the right way or how many people we, we didn't do a good enough job. And so that it like, it haunts me a little bit. Because yeah. could I have done something different there? I had no idea. But um, there was a statistic that, you know, for X amount of entertainment at so many intervals, it's like X amount less therapy when the troops were home. Like there was something about that. And so yeah. we had this kind of like, we have to do this many and get there this many times. And I don't know, man, I was just, I was just doing what I could to help. But yeah, we've, we've had SEALs commit suicide. Mm -hmm. Um Overseas, I mean, very senior officers. Um, yeah. And part of the problem is you can't do anything unless they just say, hey, something's right. off, man. Yeah. Okay, hey, good. Yeah, great. Uh, and you guys have there been we trained go. more than anybody to, like, suffer in silence. Put, a put emotions yeah. way deep down inside. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It was, uh, I, I remember that all the way back because I, I started out in the Marines as a recon Marine, then became a SEAL. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I always remember, especially in recon, suffering silence. Like if you whimpered in in a hurting position, right? They're like suffering silence. Um, I think they're breaking that pretty well. And uh, you know, good. I say the 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 highest form of masculinity is actually vulnerability, not mm -hmm. victimhood, not complaining. Yeah, but vulnerability of saying, "Hey, something's something's off with me right now." Yep. Good. That's all we need to know. Let, let's Figure get you out. help. Uh, the BMX thing, I watched that. That was <laughs> like, so I don't, I never saw any of these shows. No? I think by nature of our job, we did yeah. meet uh, uh, Lieutenant Dan. What's. Oh, yeah. Um, um, Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise. He was over all the time. Like, so he went with Colonel Rainey, who was kind of our main point of contact. Yeah. And Colonel, I never met him either, but Colonel Rainey was like, that guy is the best. He cares. He's always showing up. Like, he was, he was a proud patriot going over there and doing that. Humble. Just mm -hmm. very quiet and, and unassuming, and it like yeah. was very nice, man. And just spoke to us for five minutes, and they had to usher him off. And yeah, that was the only entertainer I've ever uh, ever seen. But we got the, a good one. Yeah, the BMX uh, 
I, I, I'm sure the troops, did you guys, were you playing while they were? Uh... So, so here's what happened. I was, you know, I had another life at home when I wasn't yeah. in Iraq and I was around a lot of action sports guys and around the X games. I'd worked there a few years kind of doing stuff here and there. And um, my original idea was I, I knew some guys that worked at Target and Target was sponsoring Sean White and all these action sports guys. Yeah. And they were close friends. And I was like, I know that they had an X Games Dubai. So I knew that there was this huge ramp in Dubai and I know there's a base up there. I'm like, can we get that ramp to Baghdad and do like a cool thing? And it just never panned out. But in the process of trying to figure this out, I met a guy named Nate Wessel, who's become one of my very best pr- friends over the last couple of decades. But he he built all the X Games skate parks. Like he's down with Travis Pastrana in Texas right now, building his whole new complex down there. And he's, he's a, an artist and he's a pro BMXer and he's just... He's one of the hardest workers you ever meet in your life. Mm. And he's like, I can build a skate park every day. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> and, he, and, and so he convinced me that it shouldn't be skateboards. It should be BMX. And he was right because, the, you know, the blacktop's pretty chewed up over mm-hmm. there. You need a bigger wheel mm-hmm. than a skateboard wheel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we tried to do dirt bikes, but getting a bike over and suspensions and big jumps, like that was hard. You needed bulldozers. BMX fit really well. And so we pitched the idea, and they were really hesitant because they'd never done anything like that. And, um, as you saw in the documentary, like the first, like we got, like, I literally, I remember a couple months before we went over in the first BMX tour, I was over on another band tour and I, uh, I had to go to the gate of, or the, the, like the border of the base and like stick an envelope of cash through to this guy from a lumber yard in Baghdad because they wouldn't give us wood on the base. Cause it was hard to get wood. Like they're not, we're like, we're not giving you wood for quarter pipes. So I had to like buy wood outside and then they were going to bring it back. And I didn't know if I'd ever see that money again. So we showed up at the show and it was like, is the guy going to show up? And he did. And then the wood was terrible. It wouldn't flex. So we had to, we had to pull like plywood off of all sorts of weird stuff. And we were late and there's all these people standing around and then we turned the music on. We finally got going and guys started throwing backflips and the place went nuts. And yeah. I was just like, oh, this is, this is great. So you know, it's, it's the same audience. It's like, it's a younger male. It's kind of an adrenaline junkie. And um, it was a perfect fit. So it was just a really fun experience. I think we did eight or 10 of those trips. And, um, and man, that one, like, I'd like to say my band was like the coolest, but there's no way like the, the BMX shows, the whole base would come out and, and it was just, it was a party. It was cool. That is good. That is great. I would have loved to watch that, man. Yeah, it was fun. So eventually you put the instrument down. It just, what, what was the decision point there? Like, you know, it's funny. We uh, we were talking about this the other day. Um, I uh, we did a third album. My band did, and we never played another show. The, the album was great. We got it done. We were excited to go tour. We were, you know, when we were doing these tours, we started bringing over like GoPro and Harley Davidson, and these guys would give products out. Mm-hmm. And then that went so well. You know, Harley Davidson said, "Hey, man, can you come do this for us over in Europe or do this here?" And so I was getting busy doing things like that that actually paid pretty well. And my brother got married, and. We just never played another show. Just life just took us in a different direction. Yeah. We actually um, hashtag adulting. Yeah, yeah, it just got to a point where it was like we didn't book anything, and I, there was just other stuff to do. And it, it's kind of funny because usually you have some kind of like farewell concert, especially when it's been like a yeah. ten year run. We've done pretty well, and we we just vaporized, and that was it. But it's all yeah, good. No pomp and circumstance, no, just no. fading too. Yeah, you, you know it's it's amazing how the thing you love just it just sort of fizzles out in the end. I mean, timelines are different for different people, but yeah. I mean, I, as much as I loved, I loved the boys. I loved the guys and I did love the job, especially yeah. overseas when, when we were doing what we were trained to do and there was purpose behind it. But at just some point it was like the sword in the sand moment. It was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm tapped. Yep. Yeah. You can feel it. There's yeah. like something internal when it happens. It's like, it's okay. Like people are always like, don't you miss that? And it's like, 
like I said earlier, I, m- I miss when it was good. Like, yeah, yeah there were some yeah. really cool moments, but do I want to go back to driving around a van? And I, it's funny, I was in Atlanta airport uh, last weekend and I ran into um, John and Tim Foreman. They have a band called Switchfoot. I don't know if you know them from Southern yeah, California. I've, I've heard, yeah, the name. But they were one of my favorite bands growing up. I love those guys. We shared a producer and they, I was standing in line at the bathroom. They went in and brushed their teeth and headed out. And uh, I actually met him a few times. So I said, hey, John, how's it going? And I was just like, wow, those guys have been doing that for a long time, brushing their teeth in like the Delta Lounge. And for some people, that's probably like amazing. And I I think it's incredible. I mean, the fact that they can keep doing this at the level they have is is pure success. I'm just saying for me, it's like, I was like, boy, I'm I'm cool with where I'm at. Yeah. Because I remember those days. How old were you when you... You left or sort of stop playing music. Yeah, stop playing or stop. Yeah, the band sort of split up. I don't know, 26, 27, 26. somewhere in there. Yeah. And during that time, those 10 years with the band, I mean, were you were you hunting and were you getting into? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was a weird life because you'd you'd leave for two or three weeks and then yeah. you'd come home and have a couple of weeks to kind of catch up on things. Uh, I was also working on a hard apple cider company with uh, my friend Joe Heron. It's called Crispin's. We built that up and sold that to Miller Coors. So when yeah. I was home, I was working yeah. on that pretty hard. Um, Damn, dude. And just kind of, I don't know, man. I just, back to that work ethic thing, I was just always staying busy, always trying to look for the next thing. And, um, I, you know, we, I remember climbing a few mountains during that time, but it was it was very, like, as you know, you, there's a little bit of decompression that has to happen when you yeah. come back. And yeah. so those windows got pretty short. So there wasn't any many big trips in between. It was a lot of coming home, kind of getting centered and heading back over. But. Dude, I, you know, I think the lesson for, like, the young guys, young men listening, is, like, go hard in your 20s. Go hard in your 20s all the way to 35. I don't I want to say the hard times ever stop or you stop grinding. But I would even tell my daughter, like, marry somebody in their 40s. Like, right. even if you're in your 20s, marry somebody in your 40s because they've worked through all their, their bullshit. About <laughs> yeah. it. They're probably financially sound. They're yeah, more mature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you, so you guys sold it to Miller. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I had, at that point, I had kind of, I, once I started doing Iraq so frequently, I took a smaller role at the company. But yeah. when we started, it was Joe and I up in his attic and developing the logo and we'd get samples and we'd test them all and be like, we like this one. And then they'd send us variations on that. And so that was a, that was a really fun experience, but I just, I don't know. I was just grinding. It was just like, what's Did you guys have a little distillery in the, the attic or how are we you uh, brewing? A, we, um, we bought a distillery in Colfax, California called Fox Barrel because our data showed that this was going to probably take off on the coast first and it was glass bottles. So instead of shipping glass bottles from Minneapolis where we were to California, like let's get a distillery out there to make it. And then it's a cidery, I guess. And then it's closer. And what happened was Chicago is where it took off. So (laughs) we went from Minneapolis to buying a distillery in Colfax, California or a cidery, sorry. And then shipping all the glass bottles back to Chicago, Minnesota. But isn't it all worked out life? Yeah. Like, yeah. this that's is what we're going to do. And then it's like a 180, and that, that's what you end up doing for life. Yep. And you're like, how the hell did that work? Right, right. Um, never know. Cr- cradle to grave from when you guys started that to when you sold it. How many years was that? Oh, five or six years, I think. It was that's a pretty a quick, quick exit. And I got to give a lot of credit to Joe. I mean, he just he just knew how to do it. He'd had another exit earlier with a yeah. nutritional soda company. And just when he started this, he's like, come do this with me. And it was it was a great learning experience. You know, I'm in my 20s yeah. and just doing what I do best. And he kind of handled the rest and... And it was, it was really cool. So when, when did you really start getting into like the hunting? When I was living in California. So after that, I was kind of sitting in Minneapolis going, what do I, 
I want to keep growing. I want to keep keep evolving. And and I got some work out in California with some people that I thought would be really good mentors. And so I moved out there. Um, Where in California? Uh, I was in Newport Beach. Okay. And good living. Maybe. Uh, uh, you know, the the hardest thing I could do was like put on spandex and ride my bike a hundred miles. It it was it was hard for me to find that. Like it was suddenly like um. Um, Spartan races and warrior dashes made sense to me. It's like yeah. the, the need to yeah. just feel dirty and just like push yourself. Like, uh, like, oh, that's why people sign up. Cause like, uh, I don't even know how to get dirty in Newport beach. Everything's so clean and pristine. And so there was this, like this gap from growing up on a farm to being in California. And a buddy of mine just said, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a Montana elk hunt, like with a bow. And I was like, I'm in, like, I've never done that. Like, let's go. So, um, that one really kind of changed my life. Like once I got out there, I was like, oh, okay. I didn't even know this existed. It's a lot different than sitting in a tree stand waiting for something to walk by. Yeah. Like it, it, it's orienteering with horses in and GP, selection yeah, of yeah. positions with, uh, did you bag an elk on that first one? I didn't No. Yeah, and here's the thing. It's just like, people are like, oh, that must've been let down. No, not at all. I was in Montana for how many days? Like yeah, five, like 10 days, 10 days. No like, cell service. Great. My dad, my friend, little camp up there, there's bears and elk and we had a couple of close encounters and I got to, you know, you, you, it's funny. Like, yeah, I just, I did a hunt in Alaska a couple, couple falls ago and my watch tracks all my sleep. I've never had higher sleep scores than sleeping in a tent in Alaska in freezing conditions. Cause you're, you're just so calm and exhausted and, and like homeostasis where yeah. you're supposed to be. Yeah. So there's a lot of value there. It's not just the killing. No, which does serve a purpose, which a lot of people who don't grow up in, For sure. let's say, rural environments don't hunt, understand that it, it's also the homeostasis of the environment. Of, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, could, I could go deep on, on why I think hunting is important and how... Well, dude, uh, this is what the platform is for. <laughs> no, no, no I, I, I'd be interested. I, you know, let's get to that. But yeah, yeah, no you, you mentioned uh, the, the Spartan races, and we've had Joe DeSanto on. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, that guy is great. He's, mm -hmm. he's a character in, in, in all these others. Uh, you know, we just... We're working with uh, Highlander, uh, which is just people come together and hike either 15, th uh, 30, 45, or 60 miles. You, you all go down in one location at night. It's just community. Cool. It's it, people unplug. And it's by a pro, uh, former uh, uh, BMXer who was oh, with really? the Red Bull team. He's from uh, Croatia. Uh, oh, wow. Yuri. I love this guy. He's just the nicest guy. Um, and, and humbled that uh, that you know we found each other, but yeah. just getting out and breaking away from like the city of Austin. Uh, but you talk about that primal nature. I I I, I say I, I call it being like Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. um, but returning to nature, where we came from. Yeah, you know we just had Kelly start on here. He talks about like we're built to move. Yeah, absolutely. the human body is built to move to go into nature, but even more so, you know, with those races, it's it's hardship and community. It you is go through hardship along, you know, shared hardship. And it just builds bonds that uh, that can't be broken. And when you go hunting with guys regularly, it's just like oh, these are my boys. Yeah, it's it's such a connecting thing. It's it's really, I mean, they always say like our society is is transitioning and changing faster than our our DNA allows us to. Right? Like we're still kind of more caveman than we are set up to work in this. Idea Some more than others. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but returning to what your body's designed to do, I think, is really really healthy. My, <clears throat> my buddy, Michael Easter wrote the book comfort crisis. I don't know if you know, Michael. Oh yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he talks about how humans were designed to basically wear out animals. So traveling long distance, cause animals are fast. You can't catch them, but you can wear them out. This is caveman stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So you 
five, 10 miles from camp, they finally get on them and then you got to carry them back. And like, that's what humans are designed to carry heavy weight and travel long distances and eat intermittently and all those things. And it's just, it's complete opposite of what we're doing anymore. So I think when you just give your body what it's, what it needs, it, it's amazing what it does for you. You just feel different. So honey, Mm -hmm. give, give me your philosophy on honey. Cause still like you remember we're, we're in Austin. We yep. call this a blueberry and uh, tomato soup. Some people are like, oh, you, 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 two A community, like yeah. savage. How do you, what, what's your perspective on uh, hunting, both from a physiological, psycho- psychological standpoint, but not only, you know, conservatism? Boy, it's hard to quantify. Or conservation, all that. I'm sorry. Yeah, but I think, I think, you know, I'll, I'll post an animal I've harvested on my Instagram, and it used to be I got a ton of, ton that, of hate. Yeah. And I, that doesn't happen anymore. So I think I've, I've navigated out my audience. But people, it's funny how many people will criticize you, but love a cheeseburger. And um, I, I think there's a couple things. One, if you look at conservation, like humans have had a massive impact on the earth and there is no way to unwind that. And so there has to be a balance. You look at like what's happening with the grizzly bears around the Yellowstone. Like mm. They are protected animals. They were brought there. The idea was once they got to a certain scale, that then you were going to be able to hunt them. Well, that's not happening now because there's enough people that don't want to kill them. And I get it. They're beautiful animals, but they're getting into farmers' fields. They're killing the cattle. They're expanding. They're causing a ton of trouble. And I've seen these studies, and I don't remember the numbers, but they put cameras on these grizzlies in, in Alaska, I think it was, and the amount of baby elk and deer and caribou that each grizzly killed every day was jaw-dropping. I'm talking like multiples a day. And when you take that by how many thousands of grizzlies there are, like in Yellowstone, like think what that does for the elk and for everyone else. So then then that affects the grass yeah. that those animals yes. have been eating. And there's just this chain reaction. And so I think if humans are going to be here, we have to balance this stuff. I had a hunting guide, Fred Harbison. He's a hunting guide up in Alaska. And he told me, he goes, hunting is like Prozac. It's like without humans, okay, let's just take grizzly bears in the Brooks Range of Alaska. They don't have any, any predators. So their numbers are going to skyrocket if there's nobody hunting them. And then they're going to get to a point where they're eating all the... Everything's they're Eating everything, yeah. so then they don't have food. So then they get sick, and then they tank. And, and then, then they, they come become vegetarians. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the problem is you get one bad winter when the numbers are low, and, and that's how extinctions can even happen. Mm. You know, it just kills a population. Mm. With hunting, they got people out there measuring and managing, and they're making sure that it's the right number to the ecosystem can support. And I think that that's like a really beautiful thing. And that's why it's hard to get a tag in certain places and well, it's monitored. And yeah, yeah. There's I, a, I will never tags. cross a game warden. They scare yeah. the living crap out of me. Some of them are uh, <laughs> deadly. Yeah, they are. So, I mean, that's, that's how I take that from a hunting perspective, from a food perspective. Um, I start to get nervous this time of year because my freezer's almost empty, you know, like my elk's almost gone. And I don't, I just, it, it's like pure gold to me. Like I, yeah. I, I had a friend, uh, my buddy Dia, he's, he's Egyptian in descent and um great guy good buddy of mine but he came over one time i was cooking elk and he goes where can i buy this and i'm like you can't you just absolutely can't he's like what like that's how good it is you know the guys like dia who like to eat at really fancy restaurants like yeah. once you have some something you carried off the mountain no back, hormones no artificial yeah it, that's and they're ranging such a big area they're getting no matter what you do, I mean, even in my farm growing up, every cow had its own personal recipe of like the exact right nutrients. Yeah. But even that is not as biodiverse as an elk that's been ranging a hundred mile mm. area for six or seven years. And it just, it's different. You feel different. I sound like Joe Rogan right now, but like, it's true. It's totally true. So for me, there's a lot of value in it. I'm not a cold blooded killer. I don't, 
I don't like, I always get emotional walking up on an animal. It's a, there's respect. There's Massive a respect. Amount of respect. Thank you for you for, for the sacrifice you've given to mm-hmm. feed our families. And yeah. Yeah. But also it's like the way humans have lived since humans were on this planet. And I think it's, it's necessary. Like the amount of time that humans have decided to become vegetarian on the, on the timeline of humans being on earth is like the very end here, right? We've always eaten meat. And I think that that's the way it should be. But you see so many people that have gone like vegetarian, then go back to eating meat and they're like, oh yeah, my health is oh. just. Endless examples of that. Mm. Pro football players. Uh, what was it? There was a documentary that, that uh, went out, came out at Sundance. I can't remember it. It was about vegetarian athletes. And they were talking about. Was uh, this the one where Arnold Schwarzenegger was in it? And I think it was so. basically led by a UFC guy who was hurt for eight months and he, he went into the exploration. Yeah, that took a lot of criticism. And I think there was a lot of money behind that that was pushing it in a certain direction. Right. Well, they, and, they, and they talked about how, like, the Roman, like, the the, the guys would fight in the Coliseums um, would eat only, they had, had, like, wheat bellies, they called it. Because, oh, these are these are gladiators. They eat only vegetables. Well, they were eating that because it made their bellies fat. So when they got stabbed, it couldn't hit their vitals. <laughs> like, that was the real. That's the true story. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, the yeah. true story. But it's just, it's, I don't know. I mean, look, I eat a lot of vegetables, too. Like, I think balance is good. But, um, yeah, I, if, for me, that's just how I choose to live my life. Yeah. And that's how I encourage others, too. Have you, have you ever done the carnivore? Like, you ever tried it, like, 30 days? or <laughs> I've never done it. I've, I've always been tempted, you know, you hear these stories of, uh, of Jordan Peterson and guys who just their whole yeah. lives changed, and at some point I will. I think it's been hard with my life traveling so much and everything else. It's just hard to be consistent oh, yeah. for me right now. But I mean, um, when, when you go on the road, you're like, yeah, five guys, I'll take two patties, <laughs> no, uh, no bun. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It, it's, it's pretty interesting, all my buddies who have done it. I've got to give it a 30-day shot. All mm-hmm. my buddies that have done it just, like, lean out. Yep. They look great. Yep. Like they feel great. Yep. Uh, but I heard the first two weeks, because you basically have no carbs. Right. You're like your, your right. body's going through serious adjustments. Right. And you got to get enough fat too. That's the thing with like elk, because there's not a lot of fat and it satiates you. Like yeah. elk, yes. eating elk is kind of like when you have sushi and you're like, oh, I'm full. And then 20 minutes later, you're like, why am I so hungry? Because it just runs through you. So. Um, but no, I have to try it. I'll ch- you let me know when you do it. I'll do hey, it. We'll, we'll do a 30 day challenge. <laughs> there we go. Good. I'm in. Uh, you know what I've started following? Um, well, I don't know if I've pushed these to you, but there's some dudes out there that just simply go out and take, you know, photography mm-hmm. of the animals. Yeah. In like the mid of like Montana, like winter, the most beautiful uh, photos I've ever seen. I, I've started following a lot of those guys. Just artists, dude. Mm-hmm. Artists. I mean, do, do you guys do any camera work when you're out there? I mean, I, I typically I'm trying to run light because I'm covering, yeah. I'm, you know, I've never drawn. So, for people that don't hunt, you you put in applications to draw a tag, and if you draw a tag, it means you're going to an area where there's a higher density of good animals. Yeah, I've never drawn one in my life, so I always end up in like these national forests where the only way you can win is if you go deeper and further than everyone, which means you want to go pretty light. So, I've usually got I've got this little tiny Rico camera that I bring with and my iPhone, and um, I would love the I would love the opportunity to take a big old lens and yeah. go do some stuff, but oh, I'm not carrying it. I'll make like Will carry it. Plus my pack, <laughs> no, or, I, or I'll go back to Nepal and get one of those yaks and just that that was I, I, I want, felt really bad there. Man. I really want some mules. That's what I want. So mules, I just pack, pack them, mules. Yeah. Dude, I had a buddy in Colorado that had a pack mule. Cool. And of course, he rented the pack mule, mm-hmm. and the mule took off. No. And they were going to charge him like a like he's like I'll get it, and I think it took like two months. He finally like somebody called him. I think. Said, hey, we, we saw that mule. He went back out, found it, brought it back. But uh, I had was, that happen. You no know, kidding. We were in. Uh, I was moose hunting in British Columbia on the Yukon border, 
and we had been chasing this moose. We did 134 miles in four days on foot, me and my guide. In the mountains. Yeah. Um, we had we camped like five miles away from this valley so the scents wouldn't go over. We had seven horses we brought up part of the way. And we had kind of like a, they had a corral for them there. But we had to go to this other valley to hunt this moose. So every day it was in and out. It was like 10 miles in and out, something like that. And then we were up there and we're just running the tops of mountains, glassing. And uh, we got close to like, it was like day four we found him. So we got close day four, we got close day five. And then day six, we, went, we weren't seeing him. So we went to look on the other side of the valley just randomly. And my guide goes, oh my gosh. And I'm like, what? He goes, the horses. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, the horses are down there. And so we were, we were five or six miles, seven miles from where the horses were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It was like the last hunt of the year. It was freezing cold. There was no food left. The horses were like, they knew the way to the highway. They're like, peace out. We're heading home. And they had just headed. If we hadn't looked over that ridge, we would have lost all seven horses. So you went immediately down. So we had to drop down, kill the hunt. I had to take my belt off and use it as like a, a, a leash or a yeah. halter. And, and um, we had to walk all the horses back that night. But uh, it, it can happen. It's pretty 134 funny. 134 miles in four days. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're a fit dude. And I, I know you're, you were into like endurance sports and everything else like that. Um, big time runner. Have you changed your workouts specifically to optimize your performance? with my workouts changed throughout the year yeah so like in the winter i I do more lifting i ski a lot i ski tour so hike up in the every morning i hike up with my dog in the mountains and i ski down um that's like my cardio he hikes with me runs down oh he he runs down he follows you yeah he loves it's like a dog he's a swiss mountain dog he's like 115 pound kind of just a big derpy like he's awesome he's my he's my best friend you know but he loves it. he gets so excited so we go up with headlamps you know early in the morning ski down get first tracks go to work then it's usually gym afterwards putting muscle on but this time of year early summer is a lot of cardio a lot of mountain running um like like i go home today and then saturday there's a cirque series race which um, is a brighton ski resort it's about seven miles 3500 feet of vert you start at the base you run up to the top and back but when, when you're doing a lot of cardio is it hill work a lot of yeah I, wear, yeah, I usually wear like a 20 or 30 pound weight vest and then I do three or four miles of like really hilly stuff. And it just, I think what that does is it not only, it, it quickly pulls your body into shape, but I think it also really helps with your joints and your bone density. I, I saw this the, video. The, are you talking about the weight vest? Yeah, yes. yeah. I saw this uh, TV show once where um, they were talking about like the amazing human body and they had this guys, you know, those, those karate guys that break bricks. Yeah. And they measured the bone density of the, the one individual, his breaking hand and the hand he didn't break with. And it was like five times the bone density from breaking bricks his whole life. That just stuck with me. It's like, you need to put your body under load. If I'm going to be carrying heavy packs around and doing all this my whole life, I want to build that. So that's been a thing I've done for a long time. So as it gets closer to hunting season, it gets to be more like 70 pounds and I'm hiking, not 20 pounds and running. Yeah. But I just kind of transition. I, once you know your body well enough, you can kind of feel where you're lacking, where you're strong. And I just, I kind of stay flexible and just try to try to make sure I'm ready to go when, when it's time to go. Do you look back at when uh, you started going out on these hunts, like the amount of stuff you brought? And have you like, has it become more streamlined? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's something that, um, you know, you can read every online article on what to pack and what to take, but you got to figure out what works for you. You And, um, and it's very specific to the season and where you are and the animal and what you're trying to accomplish. I've definitely made the mistake of carrying 15, 20 pounds too much. And I don't do that anymore. (laughs) So, you you know, funny thing, you look at the beginning of the uh, global war on terror, Mm -hmm. we had like drop pouches, like with four magazines in the drop pouch. And then you had your pistol drop pouch. And then you had like probably another eight magazines and like all this, it was ridiculous. And by the end, no, you couldn't. 
and plus we're in the, the summer of uh, Iraq. Oh, yeah. And now you fast forward to like when I left in 2014, you had like, well, also nature of where I was at, but you could not have been more streamlined. Like three mags, yep. maybe one in the gun, maybe an extra one. Yep. I mean, we were, we I dropped see. weight. Even the plates became uh, yeah. lighter uh, and thinner. And I think a lot of that finds its way into consumer products, which is really cool. Like it's, it's fun to see you guys doing that and figuring it out. You know, I do you think it goes the other way? Like, yeah, let's not start awarded like advanced technology, <laughs> but it, you, there's so many, there are so many products on the civilian market now that are a derivative of the war. But I mean, the same thing about the space race. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that exploration led to so many products. I mean, we, we just brought it up on another, like Tang. Yeah. Tang, yep. came, which is awful, but came out of. Uh, That's where Mylar blankets came from. Did you know that? I didn't. The space station was leaking. Uh, was leaking heat out of a power generator. They were trying to figure out how to fix it, and they came up with with mylar as it reflects infrared heat, right? And they wrapped that, and that was the original use case for it. Now they make mylar blankets. That's insane. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. Yeah. So was there a bad situation that you ran into uh, on a hunt? To start the company? Yeah. Or or did you just see how unprepared other... You know, it was, it was a lot of little touch points. So moving to California, and not to criticize your home state, I'm sorry. No, but it's okay. I'll, I'll criticize you know, it all day long. <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up around farmers. It's like something broke. You just figured out how to fix it. You know, you were, you were just finding ways. And then I, I did all those trips overseas where it was the same type of mentality. And then I moved to Newport Beach, and it was this mentality of, well, somebody else is going to fix this. I just got to push a button on my phone, and somebody else will come and take care of it. And that was, that was the uh, emergency plan. And... I can't tell you how many times I would, like, I'd be out riding my road bike and there'd just be somebody in Topanga Canyon with a flat tire sitting there with no cell service. And I'm like, somebody coming? I don't know. Like, what do you, you know, they got dogs in the back overheating. Like, what do you, it was just, it was a weird thing. I'm like, wow, people really don't know how to change a car tire even. So what do you do if something big happens? So it, it led me down this path of, of what's happening to society, overpopulation and, you know, you can argue climate change one way or another, but there are variances that happen um, that leave people kind of in bad spots. There's There was some political unrest going on. I was just like, wow, we are, it feels like society is like this teeter-tot. We're just balancing. And it wouldn't take too many things to really have something crazy like COVID happen where all of a sudden everything changes. And those emergency response solutions work until they don't. And usually when they don't is when you really need them. So you know, it, it took me down this wormhole. And Charles Darwin is f- most famous for survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. But what he talked mostly about was the power of community and how, like, everything from an invading army to taking down a woolly mammoth, the way humans got through it was doing it together. And that just, it really stuck with me because, like, growing up on a farm in Wisconsin, if a tornado went through, my, my family would throw the chainsaws in the truck and chains, yeah. and we'd go over there yeah. and we'd help. And in California, it'd rain and people would lock their doors. And... It's like, wow, everybody, it's every man for himself out here. And that's just the way our society has led people to be. And so how do I elicit change there? How do I make it so people are coming from a place of abundance where they're not only feeling confident they can take care of their family, but maybe they can help their neighbor? And if we could do that scale and we could move enough product to do that, now the EMTs can get to the people that really need it. And then we've got a solution that might actually work. So that was always the, the large-scale goal of what I was trying to accomplish. You, you, there's a lot of profound things in what you just said. One, I, I don't think people realize that the capacity of like emergency services it's is very a lot less than they think. Oh. It's based off of like 
probability. But again, COVID showed so many weaknesses, yep. not only in the yep. supply chain uh, of emergency response of our medical system. Um, I think, you know, the, you know, urban areas tend to, to, to be less community based. For sure. And it's in, in, there is something about growing up in the rural areas of, of America where, yeah, you are dependent on one another, but we even saw it here in Austin, you know, you guys in Wisconsin laugh. So when I go and give speeches like to, to like the Midwest, mm-hmm. I'm like, yep, the, the great snowstorm of uh, 2021 <laughs> in Austin, people lost their minds. But I mean, yeah, we've got, you guys don't have a way to handle ice and you've got your own power grid. And there's just a lot of reasons why that got really hard. But so there was very few people helping each other out. I mean, we've got, my wife has a forerunner with a lift, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all-terrain tires and like we're driving 20 miles an hour and there'd be a Prius that comes like flying by us at like 40 <laughs> right into a ditch. You're like, I don't, yeah, we, Hey, are you okay? Do you yeah. need help? No, we're good. I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like yeah. common sense. There's people don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And had I not jo- joined the military, I don't know how much, you know, sort of contingency preparation I would, I would have. I mean, yes, I've got like a blowout kit in my car mm-hmm. prepared for, for, for certain contingencies, but that's a product of the community that I came from. Right. Right. Um, well, we, we used to be kind of a blue collar country. It was, it was, it was farmers. It was people that had a lot of different skills to do their job. And now our society is like, I'm a, I'm a digital marketing manager and I'm a big expert on this. I'm deep on this one narrow thing. I think we've gone from a country of kind of a diverse skill set to do your job to something really narrow. And I think that it's not that people are dumb or people don't care. It's just that you want to be successful. You focus on where you're going to find that success. And that becomes like the thing, you know, and that doesn't include changing a car tire or navigating your way home or whatever, because you just don't think about that. And that's happening at scale. This, it, it, not, not enough people are listening to Mike Rowe. One Mike Rowe's a genius. Yeah, the guy he's, is the guy's off the charts, uh, brilliant. But he is so right. I, this this push to have everyone go to college, um, which and I'm going to be honest, I learned very little in college other than you've got to demonstrate commitment and discipline to get it done. But I mean, there's so many things like yeah. calculus, which yeah. I think is like so worth. I don't know why when you go to the business school you've got to take calculus. Right. It's a it's an absolute waste of time. I learned um, how to balance my job at college, my classes, my social life. Paying my bit, like that's what I learned in college, really. The we like, if I can get hold of my son and get him to understand this, I would push him towards the trade. Like, mm-hmm. hey, dude, you will never be, yeah. Like, in, like people will will need your services. Like, let's go, like, become an electrician, become a welder. Yeah. Like, let's combine it, and I'll help you start a business. You will be. We're having a uh, Ken Rusk, who wrote a book called uh, "The Blue Collar uh, Millionaire." Mm. Uh, he's coming on here uh, shortly, and the guy's a genius. Now, if you can learn to run a business. And pair that with your trade, right? And know how to lead people within the trades. Yep. You are you're going to be wildly successful. Yep. And as society becomes more dependent on other people to do, I, let's let's call it for what it is, man shit. Yeah. Then, then you're going to become that much uh, wealthier. I always think about. I love your opinion on this too, given your experience. But you know, there's a lot of talk of EMPs and things like that. And so, just imagine if cell phones don't work and we need to get old school telephones working again. Like, who? Who knows how to do that anymore? <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know if that's a real threat or not. It seems like it's something that comes up a lot in the media with, with you know, killing all the power around here. But there's certain things like that that a lot of people used to know how to do. And it just, I have no idea where I would turn if, if I didn't have communication and I needed to put a landline into my house. 
Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, like, no, 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 no. It's if you were to shut off, shut off all all cell phones right now, there would be one. There'd be suicides. <laughs> there, there would be an absolute. It, it would be just pure chaos and violence. Mm-hmm. It would be oh. insane. I mean, and if the cell phones are off, that probably means credit cards aren't working, which means you can't get gas awesome. or food. Not paying. Not, yeah, push yeah. start vehicles. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of, uh, there's a book called One Second After. There's a series of them, but it's it's a really interesting book about an EMP hits and what happens. And it's like things you don't think about. Like the character in the book, his daughter has uh, um, uh, diabetes and needs insulin, but insulin has to stay cold and nothing's refrigerated. And, you know, it's just like, oh, man. I don't have a solution for that. Like I, I was talking to a friend the other day and he was asking me about my gun safe and I have a digital code yeah. on my gun safe. He goes, what about an EMP? I'm like, oh man. <laughs> and I've left it unlocked ever since that call because I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I got to figure this out. I put like a Faraday blanket over it. I, I don't know what the, I, I haven't thought about that. Yes. Like what if you had guns and they were locked in a safe you couldn't get in because the, uh, the circuit board on the, on the keypad front. Or you just need a thermal torch and you're going to yeah. go through that thing. It's, you know, I'm all about progress. I'm all mm-hmm. about the advancement of technology, but always keep like one foot for sure. in, in for like, let's, sure. what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, analog type yeah. things. Yeah. Bottom line. I mean, that's, and that's very much what I'm doing with like, with Uncharted and with the businesses. Like I'm trying to, you know, we have a thing we just launched called Four Pillars and it's like, <clears throat> not to jump around too much, but people always reach out to me and they're like, I, I get DMs like this all the time. Like, I totally believe what, you, believe what you're saying. What do I need to buy? And I'm like, well, that's not really the answer because you could have all the gear in the world, but if if you can't move or if you don't know how to use it or if you're freaking out or you don't have the experience, like you're not getting anywhere. So what we're trying to do is like build a kind of an educational program that helps people. It's it's community, it's resources, resourcefulness, and then mental mental and physical fitness. And I actually did this with uh, Travis Haley. I don't know if you know Travis. No. He was a force recon Marine. Um, Love him already. Yeah, he's, he's just a super smart guy. He's down in Phoenix, a uh, good friend of mine. And he and I just whiteboarded for a few days, like, like what are the skills you need? You know, hundreds of them, right? And, and, and we those, got were, in, those were the four pillars, correct? Well, we started with hundreds and hundreds. Oh, this, I know. This, Isn't that great? And it's like all down. the things. Like, can you change yeah. your car track? Can you filter water? Can you find water? Is the water, you know, and... And then we just started, like, how do you bucket these things? And really, for us, it's like, how do you give people kind of some things to just work on constantly? And it's not like a start here and go. It's like, do you have this skill? Yes, great. Come back next week and learn another one. But it takes it takes intentional effort to stay in that analog world, to your point. Because you can't just click the SOS button on your iPhone when things are really bad. Yeah, You've got to be self-sufficient. So I was going to go there. So you guys are starting to get into the education component of it. I mean, are you going to start holding like workshops where people can come out to like Utah and spend two days with you guys? I'd like to get there. Our business, it's a small team. And honestly, like it's been a hard stretch for a startup business last couple of years. And there's been a lot of ups and downs and lefts and rights. And we're growing and I'm really proud of what we're doing. Like our products get incredible reviews and and, um, our customers love it. But that's like taking all the bandwidth I have. But this was my attempt to, every other week we put out four articles. I can do that much Good. for now. Yeah. And it's enough so like, I just, I would feel like a charlatan if I was like, yeah, if you buy our kit, you're fine. Yeah. Like, that's BS. I'm, I'm not going to tell somebody that. Like, the reality is you need a lot of stuff. And so this is my attempt to start there. I don't know where it goes. I would love to have a big training program and take people through this stuff. But that's a, that's a pretty big endeavor that, I don't yeah. know, someday I'll get Costly. There. Yeah. 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 
Dude, I've I've said this more times than than I can remember. Uh, I'd rather go back to war for ten more combat deployments than I would start another business. <laughs> I'm, and maybe it's because we got comfortable. We got you know we we got yeah. very comfortable like towards the end of the you know your career with the band. You guys were like another show. You probably like your your nerves went down. It's like yeah. when jumping out of an airplane. I'm sure the first time my my heart rate was rocketing. Right now it's just like it goes up like ten or twenty. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, beats and, and people think that like, well, what's the formula? Like don't, don't follow a formula. Yeah. There's some, some certain like rules of thumb yep. and, and how you manage your expenses. And, but dude, it's sometimes it's just like throwing spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks and then go with the, the things that stick and don't do the things that don't. I was talking about this last night. It's like anytime somebody tells me they are a, uh, a life coach, I just run. It's like, if somebody thinks they have all the answers, um, they probably have less than you think. Nobody nobody knows. When you're starting a business, I always say it's like, you should have mentors. You should bring those people in. But they've just had more at-bats. It doesn't mean they're going to hit the ball every time. They've just seen it more times, and they can probably be a little more accurate on on what's going to happen. But when you start a business, there's just so many so many unknowns. It's really just, I believe it's just showing up every, ba- every day, like not giving up, doing the smartest work you can, working hard, and just hanging in there until it starts to plane out. And I don't know any other way to do it. Maybe that's the farm kid in me, but you know, there's definitely been people that I've brought into my business that have helped me solve things that I was doing wrong, and, and that's really important. But the long and short of it is it's just, it's a grind. And um, if you think it's anything else, it's some overnight thing. Like, that's just, that's not my experience anyway. And I think as, as a society, we're looking more and more for the hack, the shortcut. Oh, people I, expect, like... I'm working on a book right now, and I have a whole chapter on hacks. And I'm like, are, are you looking for, like, success or fulfillment? Because you can hack your way to, like, a successful test score. But do you want the person to hack their way to a su- successful test score to do, to do brain surgery on you? You know, there's, there's something about the experience and the process that actually leads you to fulfillment, which I think is what most people look for. Yeah. And so I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm an anti-hack guy, for sure. But when you say the life coach, like which is that that industry has increased with social media. It's, uh, I'm going to look at your bio. Like, what's your credibility? Yeah. What have you done? And I'm not trying to poo-poo on anyone's, like, accomplishments up to that point, but if you haven't run a company, if you haven't led people, right? like, this is just not going to be a good parenting. It's like executive coaching. And in one of my companies, we we do executive coaching. Mm -hmm. I call it pure sort of, like, exploration. Yeah. That's what it is. is Let's talk through your challenges. I'll give you my opinion. Yeah, but I don't know if my opinion is going to work for you or not. But it's like it's almost like the, you know trial by error or or process of elimination. Let's let's just try things until. Well, you have a ton of experience and you've you've done some amazing things, and being able to give those lessons to people so they don't so they can avoid the pitfalls is extremely valuable. I think I should I should back up because I apologize. I don't mean to put you into that bucket. I just I think there are people usually people when they are. When they're that successful, they're, they're doing that thing. It's like these guys meet at a bar that says they're a life coach, but they're yeah. driving Uber and doing everything else. It's like, I think there's very few people that you can actually turn to as a, as a, as a leadership person that has the experience that can help you. And that, I mean, that is a good point, man. Cause I, I think everyone who, who I've met that has done like great things, started mm-hmm. companies, they don't, they move on to starting another company Yeah, and they keep on going most of the time. Yeah. The, uh, you know, funny enough, I was, it was literally yesterday. I've got this great gym. At my house, small minds repair shop. Um, actually, we're gonna start working out in the mornings. But small minds repair shop. Salt, small minds repair shop. I it's like where it. I, I get my mind right every uh, morning. Um, and we got a like we just built a sauna, and we've got a cold 
plunge. Um, you don't need a sauna here, man. Trust me. Oh, I know. Seriously. <laughs> I'm not afraid to like uh, turn it on during the summer. Like the whole thing would probably just go up in flames. But <laughs> I, I sent a, uh, uh, a video to my son. He lives in Virginia Beach. And I said, hey, imagine in your hand you had a blue pill and a, in the other hand you have a red pill. The, mm -hmm. the red pill is you're going to have, like, you're going to wake up in the morning, 8% body fat, like, increased lean muscle mass. And in the blue, or the blue pill is a six-month plan with a diet and workouts. Mm -hmm. I said most people will choose the red. In fact, 99% of people will choose the red. Yep. Why? Because it's the, the shortcut. Yeah. But they will lose it as quickly as they got it because they did not build the foundational habits. Exactly. So it'll be short-term, and, and he's understanding it, man. Um, but that's my biggest... You see so many people give businesses a shot and they just, they throw it in once they hit some semblance of uh, hardship. Oh, I, 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 I tell people all the time, it, at some point you have to burn the ships and be all in because there's always going to be an easier way to make money in the short term. Are you looking at somebody who says burn the ships? Bur burn the boats. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, I've got to connect you with Matt Higgins. He just wrote that book. I, awesome. I, I mentioned him, uh, he's, he's yep. a guest, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, judge? Guest uh, uh, shark yeah. on the shark tank? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, yeah, you, love you hear him. his you hear his story, like abject poverty. Yeah. Like to he's been wildly successful. Like he was Rudy Giuliani's uh press uh secretary, like the youngest one in history Whoa. in New York City. It's a fun but job. He grinded. I mean, dropped out of high school, G E D. Yeah. Like amazing dude. Cool. I love yeah. to meet him. I love the mindsets when you like it doesn't matter profession, man. I, I call it warriors within the respective professions. Like you get a bunch of high performing people, even if like ones in government, ones in like education, ones in business, you know, mm -hmm. they all think they the, all same have way. the same principles. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there's, again, I go back to like the success versus like the fulfillment or the satisfaction. I think what people are always looking for is that. And that only comes through grinding. I mean, when you've like, business has been hard for me. Like it's, I'm, I'm not shy about telling people that because I don't want to. I don't want people to think I'm just like cruising over here. Like it's yeah. my whole life, like my whole life's net worth is in this business and either it works or it doesn't. And, and when you're there, you find solutions. If I maybe was a 5% owner and there was another job over here that paid me more and I could have my oh, weekends dude. back, like I'd probably go take that job. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to give up on everything I've built my whole life. So I'm going to find paths forward. And I think that at the right point with any business you're building, you have to kind of have that kind of commitment to like be able to squirt through to the next level. And the tougher challenge there is getting the people who are part of your team to believe and yeah. act that same way. Yeah. And I've, I've been successful and I've also failed wildly at that. I think that's the hardest thing for me is I, um, is, not saying I have a problem with motivating employees, but I wish I was better at that. I wish I could drive more, uh, more care and more passion, passion than I currently have yeah. with my team. And I'm not saying they aren't, but there's a big difference between them and me. And if I could get them to where I am, I think we could move faster. Yeah. And that's just personally something that I work on every day, but I, it takes time, I think. Uh, you know, for me to the, uh, the biggest sort of, it's, I don't want to say letdown, man, is is I had that where I was at Dev Group. Like, everyone was bought in. Everyone had skin in the game. One, there was no ownership, and pay was never a... Uh, but they're all like it, you. Uh, right? I, I would or say no. that, uh, like, I tried to be like them. Okay. Um, I, my running uh, mantra in life is always the bridesmaid, never the bride. And I'm fine with that, because I was part of winning teams. Yeah. It's like, I'm the guy who has, like, five Super Bowl rings, but never actually played in any of the games. And I'm good <laughs> with that. Um, but, like, that's now my, like, 
gold standard. And like, I've got, I've got, I'm coming to realization it will never be like that. But hell, let's try to get as close as we can sure. with whatever team I'm a part of. But sure. Will, can we throw up uh, Uncharted Supply Company? I just want to look at this because when I go to your site, mm-hmm. like, I just want to break everything apart and like go actually test it. Yeah, man. Um, I'll send you whatever you want. Give it a shot. Uh, I'd, love, I'd love your perspective. So, in terms of your customers, I know you've got hunters. Mm-hmm. You've just got sort of probably alpinists, well, uh, nature enthusiasts. When I, when I built the first kit, the first product I made, I, I told my friends, like, look, I want something that if your 10-year-old son was home and something was happening, you could give him that kit and it would be a game changer. So I wanted something that was super easy to use, lightweight, effective, and not overcomplicated. So with everything we do, what I try to do is find better solutions, better ways to a solution that is more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about like the iPod click wheel a lot. It's like MP3 players used to have like a thousand buttons. Yeah. And then that iPod yeah. came out with just like a spin, click, spin. It's like, it's so simple and, and so effective that it works better for everything. And it's like, that's how I think about our products. It's like, how do I get people to where they're trying to get better or like faster? Smaller, lighter. Smaller, yeah. lighter, easier to use. Yeah. So, you know, we really started with what I call emergency and preparedness. And we still do a big chunk of that. But the other thing is what I call prepared adventure. And that's where it gets into the... The hunters and the fishers and the yeah. ATV guys and stuff like that. But we kind of have two verticals there, and it kind of works across. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the, the genius behind these, uh, these jump starters, um, I mean, again, you just said it. What if your car has, like, just sort of a battery kill? Yeah, I mean, two or three times a, day, a week I will get a video from one of my buddies who left their dome light on and is like, hey, man, check it out. And yeah. they just they can never believe it. Like, those, that little red one there that Zeus will start an 8-liter diesel back from the dead. Uh, my dad jumped semi trucks with it back in Wisconsin in yeah. January, and it's just imagine you're imagine you're coming up from a hunt, and you after miles and days, you get back to your truck, you left your dome light on, you don't have cell service, you're exhausted, it's dark, and there's nobody to jump your truck. Well, in 20 seconds, you're on the road with that. Yeah. Versus now you got to hike up a hill and find cell service or hike down the highway. It's just it's these little things that can make a big difference. That's huge. Yeah. These uh, these kits are pretty uh, impressive. Go up. Well. The survival kits? Yeah, the, the bug out bags, yeah. the, the survival kits. I mean, like that Yeti is just packed out. What what specifically? Packed is that like a home? Yeah, so the, on the right there, the gray one is the 72. That was our first product. That's a one person. And then the middle one is a two person. And then the Yeti is a four person. So with all of our kits, you know, what, what we've tried to do again, uh, like Clint Bruce is a buddy of mine. He was a SEAL. Yeah. He's always like, you've solved like 60% of every emergency with this because when you open that bag up, everything opens up. There's screen printed instructions. They're color coordinated with the pocket. So it's like first aid is in a red pouch. And it's the only red pouch. And if you're looking for first aid, now you can forget about the other 10 pouches and you're starting to get in the right direction, which helps your adrenaline calm down. It helps you make good decisions. So like everything we do is not only about high quality product, but it's, it's guiding somebody through because most people aren't training for emergencies every day mm. and their adrenaline's going to spike and then they're going to get tunnel vision and yeah. things are going to get complicated that normally wouldn't be when you're in an aisle at REI looking to buy gear. So that's really how we approach these things is just, is just instruction, organization, and high quality stuff. And is this you and your team like literally going through sort of the customer user experience? And this was, I mean, I, I, I always like to say it's, it's me and the team. But when I started this, I spent a lot of time myself, just took some time off of work and, and, and solved for this. And it's kind of become our North star with all the products we build. It's like, how do we make stuff that just guides people quickly to a solution? Um, and so when we build new products, that's the lens it has to go, yeah. go through. 
it's it's awesome when you see like a again it doesn't matter if you're a hunter a seasoned hunter a seasoned uh, combat vet like the way their 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 gear is is all oh, modularized yeah. it like bare bones like yep. pouches yeah they know exactly where to go everything's I, on, yeah i was at yeti yesterday and we were talking i was meeting with their product development team talking about ideas around their storage solutions like that box and um, that was one of the things we talked about is like it's like you know, we have stuff sacks and we've got labels, we've got different colors because sometimes there's a storm coming in and you need your layers fast, right? And if you've got six bags in there that all look the same, now you got to open each one and find it. It's like there are, there are things that help you solve for problems faster and sometimes that's a difference between that storm getting to you and you're soaked and then you're cold mm. versus like getting dry quickly. And that can be a game changer, just that yeah. simple thing. Yeah. So it, it's not rocket science. It's just being thoughtful and like thinking about the most efficient way to do these things. I mean, having gone through like SEER training, mm-hmm. like even this space blanket in a, yeah. let's say, in extremis situation. Like, these things are incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember going through winter uh, survival where you had to t- dig your snow cave. Yep. And they, they would give you a candle and they said, this one little candle can raise the temp like 10 degrees within yeah. the snow. Like that 10 degrees is a world of difference. Massive. Yeah. 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 This is... Uh, Man, uh, good on you for what you've created. The uh, the dog is is that the the logo is that your dog? No. So uh, when I started the company, I had a bulldog. So the idea there was, um, I was like, what's a good iconic thing that like is around survival that nobody else has used? And it's it's a Saint Bernard is what it is. Yeah. yeah. Because Saint Bernards were bred by the uh, the monks in the Bernard Pass to mm-hmm. go out. They basically built them or bred them to protect the monastery, but they found that they had an incredible sense of direction. So in like a snowstorm, they could find their way home. They had incredible sense of smells. So they could find people and they could dig like an MF or because they were 250 pound dogs that, so if somebody got buried, they could get them out faster. Yeah, are they people. still used on certain like avalanche teams? Yeah, I think they still use them out there. It's a little more of a, of a historical thing now. Yeah, now. Um, but I love that idea of just a, a dog. You know, dogs are just unpretentious. They do the job. They love you. They, they're sitting by the fire waiting to go. And so that was the logo. I now have a Swiss Mountain Dog, which is actually the breed that the St. Bernard was bred from. Um, and he's kind of our, our mascot, though. He's yeah. not the logo. But he yeah, looks he a heck to, of a lot like it. He's got an office. He gets to come to work. He, yeah, he, he, he's, his office is the couch in, in the office. And uh, he's got his routine every day. And, uh, you know, we go, to, we go to events, and he is... I would say he's my booth babe. You yeah. know, like we don't have people oh, yeah. hand stuff up, but just a big dog sitting there and it yep. pulls everybody in. So yeah. he's got a job. Where, where Where's the future with this company? I mean, where are you guys looking to expand into? I know the education, that's a big nut to crack because it's yep. just, that's mainly time. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, we continue to create new products. We've got some really cool stuff. out. We have some pet stuff coming out even. We made a dog collar that has a first aid kit built in for a dog because my dog's almost died a few times following me around. And so... Oh, a um, first aid kit specifically for, for the dog. For the dog. Love yeah, that. yeah. Okay. It's kind of fun. People love the yeah. dogs. They love buying stuff for their dogs. And it's, it's kind of following in our mindset and expanding what we do. We're working on a whole new... Actually, I probably shouldn't say. We're working on a lot of really lot of interesting things. stuff. Um, just trying to get better at what we do. But the big thing for me is, is these products are great. I'm just trying to get them in more people's hands. And this is, it's a business. We got to make money, but this is, this is my mission. Like when I'm, when I'm dead and gone, like I want people to look back and be like, that guy's company saved 10,000 lives. Like that's my goal. So for me, it's, it's how do we get, how do we get in front of more people? How do we get people to take these things? Because, you know, they're expensive. It's expensive to make a kit full of high quality stuff. But I can tell you, if you read the reviews on our site, if you talk to people, it's like, that, that really saved my day. It saved my life. It fixed this. It fixed that. And, man, you don't need it until you need it. And then you can't go buy it at that point. So 
uh, a kit for $500 is a lot less than your life. For sure. Or your child's life. Yeah. yeah. I always say it's, uh, it, it's, it's priceless when you need it. You know, well, like, I've, I've read a few of your, uh, what do you call it, blogs, editorials, <laughs> um, blogs, editorials, uh, well done. I've even learned uh, a lot of things, I think, for, for parents. And let's see what we can do to drive people to your site. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Emergency preparedness is, yeah, so many people. I mean, the run on the stores, people didn't have water. If you yeah. don't have excess water or you don't have excess food. Yeah. Um, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's that stuff, and it's also like – Maybe you got a kid that's going mountain biking for the, you know, joining the team. Like they're getting out there and something breaks or it might be sending your kid to college for the first time and just making sure they've got a little kit that sits there that if something happens, they're ready to go. So a lot of times people go right to the hurricanes with emergencies, but an emergency can be a flat tire if nobody's around and the weather's bad. It can be really small. So for me, it's like, I would say it's not only a go bag, it's a go-to bag. Like I'm always digging in there for gloves or a hat or beanie or whatever, you know, paracord, I forget a dog leash, like. There's so many things in there. Yeah, that's that's the one thing I never like to uh, sort of uh, uh, dig into my go bags. Uh, you like to them? Break, like, like, yeah. break glass in case. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. it's got to stay there. Uh, so you're also doing a podcast. Boy, that's old now. Old. It's been a couple years. I know that's time uh, I've consuming. Too, I've gotten too darn busy, but there are some good ones in there. You know, Jack Carr's in there. Uh, I've got a buddy of mine that saved a bunch of lives up on Everest. I've got... Michael no Bland, who was my drummer and Prince's drummer, talking about some crazy things about Prince. My my buddy Greg Bennett, who's a world class triathlete and the mindset and the visualization he used. So there's some there's some cool ones in there. They're still very relevant. But yeah. uh, I, I wish I could get back to it, man. I just you know how much time it takes to do it right, and I just don't wanna don't wanna half ass it. O- only so much time in the day, and you got to prioritize. I know ultimately yeah. you got to pay people, and I know that's key yeah. or that's at the top of mind for you as well. For sure, just keeping that revenue coming in. Well. Dude, I can't thank you guys enough for coming to Austin. Oh, um, we will figure out a way to do stuff because um, we've got trips coming on. Yeah. And uh, maybe we can go into some survival classes and use that forum to, to, to teach people how to start a fire or how, how to construct a, a um, uh, in extremis sort of, uh, uh, you know, barrier or right? what am I, uh, shelter. Yeah. Um, and we love those, those uh, even starting firemen. And I'm not talking about like throwing some uh, petroleum or, or Vaseline on, on cotton balls. I'm talking about like, like fire really? starting with, uh, with, with sticks. Well, that, and that's where like, I, I get it. That's a little bushcraft for me. If I'm honest, yeah, like yeah, people yeah, yeah. always go, Oh, do you know how to do that? I'm like, dude, I carry Bic lighters everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that's, <laughs> I'm kind of like, what's the simplest, like, you know, four or five Bic lighters. You're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, Jay, I've always have them, but uh, we went through, Jungle training in Panama, and we brought out this seal from Vietnam. Oh, wow. And this guy was awesome. Wow. We were going through uh, traps, uh, snares, mm-hmm. uh, fire starting, and it was like you saw the frustration on a lot of guys. Um, oh, yeah. The fire starting was more difficult than uh, than guys thought. but It's not easy. No, not easy. It's, it's a good team building exercise uh, <laughs> as well. But now, Kristen, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, Thanks, amazing man. story. And again, Thank you for making 39 trips over to uh, a combat zone to, yeah, to entertain troops, man. That's huge. Too easy. Cool. Yeah, All fun. right, guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next time.